Friends, this uh, series, this series like the Bible, like your life, your money, your time, your talents, your kids, your very breath, this series and all those things we've just mentioned, those are all about highlighting Christ. I mean, I mean, that's the purpose. That's the purpose for which we were created, to be fruitful and multiply. It's the very first command given to us in the Scriptures. And so <clears throat> what we want to do in this series is we want to look into the lives of some people in Scripture to see how highlighting Christ works, to see how Christ's being highlighted fills up their lack. Because really, that's the story for all of us. If we're honest... The story of who you are is not who you made yourself to be. The story of who you are if you're going to know Christ and live with Him forever is who Christ, if He's highlighted, is to make up for your lack. That's, that's your story. And it's, and it's really easy to read Scripture sometimes as if the mere presence of Adam, Job, Abraham, Moses, Esther, as if the mere presence of them in Scripture means that we're models that they are models to be emulated, and they are in many ways, but they are also in the Bible, not simply so that we can model ourselves after them, but so that they highlight the Messiah, who He was and what He did. So think about that for a second, because that's why the Bible exists. That's why you exist. That's why each of us are given everything that we call our own. That's why we have breath in the first place to highlight the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything you own, everything you're given, all of your talents, your very children, everything about you. The way that God knit the molecules and the cells and all of us together is meant to equip us, to enable us, to give us the ability to become who He created us to be, which is people who are fruitfully multiplying for His goodness and glory to be made known. So that's what we're going to do in this series. That's what we want to do in our lives. That's how we want to read the Scriptures as we go through them. And every of these characters, every one of these characters that we'll study in these series was somewhat aware and somewhat unaware of the role that they played. But think of how aware we are in comparison to the ones we'll study. We studied Adam last week. We're going to look at Job this week. We're going to look at Abraham and Moses and Esther. We're, we're looking on the other side of the Messiah. With the riches and blessing of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the cross, having redeemed us, so looking on this side, how much more do we know than they? May we become people through this series and through our time today in the Word who are connected to the larger story of what God is doing to highlight the person and work of Jesus. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman, 
There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac, the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on Mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be quiet. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points from one person, Jesus. When was the last time you uh, had this palpable, this tangible sense of having been just tremendously blessed? When was the last time you had that sort of tangible, palpable sense of being just blessed beyond what you could imagine. I don't know if you, this is the experience for some of you, but a lot of times for me, it's, it's that experience of walking out a Sunday morning, and uh, it usually happens in the spring. Uh, you know, when the sun's out, it's 72 degrees, uh, the birds are chirping, the sun is shining, the grass is green, the, the band was on it, and uh, the, the rich fellowship was happening, and the preacher was on for once, and, and you walk out, and the presence of God is just, it's so close that you walk out, and it's beautiful outside, and you don't have a care in the world, you don't have a worry in your life and you think, man, I can feel the blessing. I can, I, mean, I can feel it. When was the last time you had a tangible sense of being tremendously blessed? In the Bible, 
Job was a man who had this tangible sense of being blessed. In four words, to sum it up, the basic gist about him was that Job had it all. Job had it all and he knew it. He was aware of it. And not in a way that's like prideful, selfish, I built this, I am Job. Not like that at all. He had a sense that his blessing was not being a self-made man, but, but it came from God. In four words, Job had it all. In the beginning of Job in one, Scripture tells us, it starts by telling us, the most important thing about him, that he was blameless and that he was upright. It says in one one he was blameless and upright. It says he feared God and he turned away from evil. It says all that before it lists all these blessings. In fact, he was so concerned about being blameless and righteous before God that he would, he would regularly sacrifice on behalf of his children just, just in case they were in the wrong before God. He was a man who had a tangible sense of being blessed by God. And not only was it this blamelessness and uprightnessness about him, but he had everything materially. Wealth and blessing to spare, he had it all. Dude had everything. Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and it says very many servants. The Bible says in plain terms there, it says, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Job had it all. He lived at the Biltmore. He drove a Bentley. All his kids had straight A's. He had the super cool media room with lots of space, a huge speaker surround sound. Peyton Manning signed UT jerseys along the wall. He had it all, and yet he was an upright and blameless man. So Job had it all. Until, if you know the story, until one day, things took a drastic turn in what seemed like almost an instant. Almost unjustly out of nowhere, and we'll see this from the text, out of, out of nowhere, almost instantly, within the span of what could have been maybe just a couple minutes or so, Job went from having everything to having almost nothing. Look at Job 1.13 where we pick up the story to read about what happened to him. Job 1.13, you're going to want to have your Bible open. Mercifully, this isn't about learning from Scott, but learning from God, so have your noses in the Word. Job 1.13, I want to show you just a few cool things in the text as we go. It says, verse 13, there was a day, now there was a day, sort of like once upon a time, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Scripture points this out. Because on, on birthdays, his sons had houses. On birthdays, they'd go and they'd have this long festival. This close family was there. But it also points it out to show us at the beginning and the end of this passage that this all happens in the span of one day here. This all happens quickly. Pick it up at verse 14, where it describes the suffering of Job that comes from all sides. It sort of feels capricious, kind of out of nowhere, almost unjustly so. It seems that way, of course, unjustly so. Verse 14, there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, sort of innocently just standing there. Verse 15, and the Sabaeans, the suffering comes from the south because the Sabaeans are from the south. The Sabaeans fell upon them, meaning the oxen and donkeys, and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So to keep score as we go, which we'll do along the way, Job lost oxen, donkeys, and servants. It just keeps coming. Verse 16, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire 
of God fell from heaven. This expression, fire of God from heaven, is a way of saying that, that lightning struck. So this is a suffering that came from above, sort of an act of God, as the insurance folks say. It says, verse 16, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And here's that phrase again, I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, Job has lost oxen, donkey, servants, sheep, more servants from suffering that comes from the south then also from heaven. Verse 17, the hits keep coming. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans are from the north. The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So the scorecard is oxen, donkeys, servants, sheep, more servants, camels, and now more servants that come from the south, from heaven, and from the north. Look at verse 18. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, and here's that phrase again, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind. That two-word phrase, great wind, is what we call a Sirocco. It's, a, it's a, a strong east wind that occasionally blows, and it's not a failed VW from the 70s and 80s. It's a strong east wind. It says this strong east wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. At this point, Job is thinking, I think I know what's coming. And it says, it fell upon the young people, meaning the four corners of the house. The house fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So to keep you up to speed, the scorecard reads that Job has now lost oxen, donkeys, servants, sheep, more servants, camels, even more servants, and then now all ten of his children. Now it's easy to read this from afar. Thousands of years hence, and to sort of, sort of gloss over the weight of what has just happened here to Job. It's sort of like it, that distance that we experience when we're watching TV, and there's a news story that comes on about some sort of tragedy, and uh, it's easy to give it three seconds of thought, and to switch the remote, and to move on to something else. It's real easy to sort of gloss over the weight of this. This is, this is a man who had it all. There's a man who had it all, the greatest of all the people of the East. And what could have been simply a matter of a couple minutes, the text doesn't tell us explicitly, but it says, while he was yet speaking. While he was yet speaking. Could have been a matter of minutes. He lost just about everything that really mattered to him. And not only does he lose his material wealth and possessions and his ten children, he is also physically afflicted with suffering. It's what we call the second trial. Look at, jump ahead to 2, uh, verses 7 and 8 here. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. We see that he's also physically afflicted with suffering. It says this, verse 7. It says, he got his hand caught in the exhaust fan of a coffee roaster. <laughs> That's good. First service didn't really laugh a whole lot. They were just like, <laughs> I'm going to have to make fun of them for that next week. It says, verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores. That word loathsome there is not something we talk about a whole lot. It's kind of an old word. It means causing disgust, causing hatred. Uh, the idea is that it was repulsive. Uh, look up Job 7.5 if you want some more color to what that looks like. 
It was pores that opened out and pus would come out and they'd get, they'd get dirty and, and, and worms would get in them. And it's really a sign of just total serious nastiness. So, so Satan strict, strict, struck Job with these loathsome sores. It says, verse 7, from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. So he's just lost everything. And then right away, he's also got this. If you've ever had measles or, or something real bad or rash that just kept going and going and, and was all over and you, you couldn't ever get comfortable, it's, it's a miserable feeling. Think of it like that. The itching must have been a constant annoyance. It says this in verse 8. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. He was, he was miserable. This poor guy just keeps getting punched in the gut time after time after time. Later, Job says himself, in one of many places where he laments, he says, God won't let me catch my breath. The suffering... The situations that beat him down just kept coming and coming and coming. Never felt like that? Like I, this happens and then there's this and then that and then this. It's something we've all experienced. It's something we will experience if we haven't. It's called suffering in life. And Job experienced it big time. Let's look at how he responded, though. Jump back with me to Job 1, verse 20. We're going to look at how he responded in a couple different ways. Job 1, verse 20, this is how he responded. This is interesting because it's helpful for us to notice the two ways here that he responded. His first response, verse 20, was grief. It says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. These are cultural signs of grieving. Now, now we're going to pause for just a second here. Don't dismiss this part of the response of suffering. We're going to talk about this a little later on here, but for, let's just press pause for a second here. Don't dismiss the grieving part of suffering. It is very important to grieve loss when it occurs. Don't dismiss or downplay it as unimportant. Especially if you supposedly manly men out there like to pretend that nothing ever affects you. Like you're going to whack off a finger and go right back to work like normal the next day. I remember sitting in the hospital thinking, man, I've got to hurry up. Hurry up. We've got to get to dinner. <laughs> Don't dismiss or downplay your loss as unimportant. Name your loss for what it is. Job does that here and in a bunch of other places. We're going to look at it in a little bit here. But this summary here, 120 and following, is kind of a summary of his two responses throughout the whole book. His second response here is just amazing. It's almost weird. It's almost difficult for us to understand. His second response, of all things, is worship. Look at verse 20, the end of verse 20 here. Keep reading. It says, Job fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And he ends by saying, Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, Scripture says, or charge God with wrong. So think about this. He's lost just about everything he truly cares about in life, especially his ten children. He has these repulsive sores all over his body, and he responds with grief and then with worship. 
In sharp contrast, I'm sure that many of you are a little more like I am when it comes to the kind of suffering that I experience. Everything can be going great. My life could be hunky-dory. I could be blessed, tangibly aware of how I'm blessed by God. And then I can go be walking along and stub my toenail out of nowhere. And I'm looking up at God going, why did you make me? My life is so hard. But Job has lost his children and he remains faithful. Now let me ask you, friends, when the Lord takes away, as Job said, can you say, blessed be the name of the Lord? I'm not saying that's going to answer all your questions. I am saying that's a mature Christian response. When the Lord takes away, can you still say, blessed be the name of the Lord? Will He still be the great I am you just sang about? If you are on your way home, and something tragic happens. Will he still be the one in your life lifted high that we sang about just a few minutes ago if tomorrow tragedy will strike your life with, with, with this much of the kind of tragedy that Job experienced? While we must continue to become people who maturely deal with pain and suffering, I'm sure that uh, a lot of you, like me, don't yet relate well to Job's second response of worship <laughs> and relate more to his first response of grief. We already saw some of his response, how he tore his robe and shaved his head, but I want you to look at uh, another one for me here. Uh, Job 3, 20 through 26. This is another one of his, uh, his moments of grief. This is called a lament. A lament is just a song of mourning or sorrow. This is one of many laments here in the book of Job. This sort of summarizes it. This is about uh, the most uh, painful and harshest of his words in the whole book. It says this, verses 20 to 26. We're just going to read this whole thing here. It says, Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest. The trouble comes. Part of why we're talking about this today is because we experience perhaps not the magnitude of Job, but we experience real pain and real suffering. I know some of you all have gone through some things in your life in the last little bit here, in the last year, in the last number of months, where you feel a little bit like, as a guy I was talking to this week said, I feel like a modern-day Job. You sometimes feel like that? I know some, some in our congregation who experience regular physical pain I can tell you right now, six men and women I know who have chronic and debilitating physical pain. There are many among us who have fought the demons of addiction for decades, some of whom have never beat that demon. There are many among us who have experienced egregiously difficult things like war, 
There are many among us who have experienced truly egregious and ugly emotional trauma. There are many among us who have experienced serious abuse of all manner. Sexual, physical, verbal, emotional, all manner of trauma and abuse. Most often at the hands of people who were thought to be trustworthy. One of the both hard and wonderful things about being a pastor is I get a front row seat in the lives of many people to see the ways that many of you have lived um, a hell on earth in a way that's a true burden, in a way that's hard, in a way that's painful. That's part of the burden of being a pastor. Part of the really cool thing is what we're going to talk about here with Jesus. Because I also get to see that be redeemed. I also get to watch people's lives. I get a front row seat. And that's what the body of Christ does. Is we have a front row seat to watch God change people's lives. So that suffering that defeats through the person and work of Jesus becomes His suffering for us that gives us life. We'll talk about that a little more here in a few ways. Um, and we're not going to answer all your questions about suffering today, but we are going to talk a little bit about how Jesus redeems. Something else I'm aware of as we talk about responses to suffering is that I know that there are also many of us who respond to suffering in some sometimes unproductive ways. They really aren't all that helpful sometimes. And for a lot of this, this gets to be a default. This is, this is an immature default. That is a way that many of us respond to suffering. I know this because I have. <laughs> there are many of us who uh, almost concoct suffering. We see it everywhere we look. It's sort of like my stubbed toenail I talked about. We make mountains out of every molehill we, co we come across. And then what we do is we often, we often sort of spread it around to others, demanding that they suffer for us. Not even, not even really with us. It's not about sharing burdens. It's about, it's about bludgeoning others with our suffering because we are going to be the justice that we seek. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. You can't redeem that. Can't redeem it. You're never good enough to be your own justice. And so we end up sometimes trying to take others down with us, uh, demanding that they suffer too. You ever been around folks like that who can't help? <laughs> they just can't help but sort of emotionally vomit on everybody else? Making sure that everybody else around them is burdened by their hardships? I don't mean... I don't mean healthy sharing of burdens. I mean manipulative demanding that you are my Messiah. That's what we do sometimes with our suffering. And I understand it. That's sometimes a natural response. But mature believers in Christ are redeemed people who understand what Jesus can do and what, what I can't and what you can't. So I think what God is calling us to do is to write our life's story so that it sounds less like a Shakespearean tragedy at every turn. 
which is sometimes kind of the way we like to talk about our lives. And I get it. I'm not minimizing your hurt. (laughs) But I think God's calling us to talk about, to think about our lives from the perspective of a highlighting of Christ as the Redeemer of them. As a story of redemption. One of my responsibilities as your pastor is to preach and to teach and to pray in a way so that you and I are increasingly prepared not to curse God, but to worship Him in the day of our calamity. And being able to worship God despite suffering requires understanding, and this is the key today, worshiping God despite suffering means you understand that Christ, who didn't deserve one ounce of suffering experienced the greatest suffering because of your sin, because of my sin. Understanding what a redeemed life looks like, being able to talk about your life as a highlight of Christ instead of a highlight of my suffering means understanding that Christ, who didn't deserve one ounce of suffering because of His perfect sinless life, chose to experience your grief and suffering that is infinitely unable to be carried by you. You couldn't handle, I couldn't handle the weight of all sin for all time on the cross. Look at Hebrews 10. I'm sorry, Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10 with me. I'm going to close with this passage of Scripture here. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. Hebrews 2, 9 to 10. There's just a couple cool phrases I want us to to note while we're uh, closing up here. Look at this in verse 9. It says, We see Him, namely Jesus, we see Him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. That just means that He came to earth in human form, fully God, fully man. We see Him for who a little while was made a little orange than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And it says this, because of the suffering of death. Jesus could have been crowned with glory and honor for who He was, period, without ever suffering. And He would have deserved it without question. But instead, He chose willingly like Philippians 2 says, to empty himself like a servant. He chose willingly to be honored because of the suffering of his death. That is different than we thought. That's different than maybe Adam thought it was going to be. Or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Esther, those who came before him. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And that says this, end of verse 9, so that for the purpose that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's a revolutionary idea. That is an incredible truth. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for us by his suffering. Look at verse 10. There's a real cool way it states this truth. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, in other words, it would only work if God did this, It was fitting that He should make, this is God the Father, the founder of their salvation, meaning Jesus, perfect through suffering. So God the Father made the founder of our salvation, Jesus, complete, made Him perfect, complete through suffering. In other words, in order for Jesus' perfect and sinless life to work for us because we were sinners, 
He was made complete by suffering for us, which means that the story of our life needn't be one of death, doom, destruction, despair, suffering. Now that doesn't mean suffering doesn't hurt. Don't mishear what I'm saying. Suffering hurts. It is egregiously painful. But only Christ's death, only Christ's death through suffering can counteract the suffering of your life and this world. Which means that when Christ is at the center of your life's story, suffering need not be the centerpiece. It's some of the twists and the turns. It's some of the zigs and the zags. It's some of the hurt along the way. It's some of the experience of the pain and sin and evil that are the consequences of our own sin and the sin of others against us. There's no doubt about that. That we all have in common. But when Christ is at the center of your life story, suffering is not the centerpiece, but redemption is. Because God replacing suffering which is real and worthy of being grieved about, God replacing suffering and putting in its place His own suffering becomes our story. So, so when, we, when we experience suffering, we have, we have a decision to make. We have an option. We have the option, like Job, of cursing God or worshiping Him. Now I know I've joked about it a little bit, and I'm probably going to joke about it a little more here. I know it may seem like a small thing, and I hesitate to call this hand thing that I'm experiencing suffering, but but when I look at my mangled finger, I have the option, like you do with all of your own pain, I have the option of becoming embittered and angry about that. And I've had a few bouts of, a few mini bouts of depression along the way, a couple days of thinking I'm never going to get back to normal, I am so far behind I can't even breathe. And, and, and there have been times where, <laughs> where I've thought, Lord, hello. I'm the busiest time of my life. It's a new year. Things are always busy at the beginning of a new year. We're a growing church. We have more people with more needs than we've ever had. I'm trying to adopt a baby for you, Jesus. I mean, she's staying up three times a night and it's more people and my kids are feeling disconnected from me because of my busyness and we're in the middle of this launch of this community outreach and it's my anniversary and I'm supposed to go to a fancy dinner with my wife and this happens I have a choice I have a choice to tell the story of my suffering as if my purposes are the center or as if God's purposes are and while I'm not proposing that we understand all the ways that that works, I am proposing that the choice remains that I can look at my pain and I can choose to be bitter, or I can look at it and it can be a sign to me how much more. How, how much more is the suffering of a perfect, sinless God, holy, amazing beyond our greatest thoughts of Him. 
How much more amazing is it that that perfect sinless God who deserves no suffering whatsoever will come down to suffer the greatest suffering of all time in all history on the cross, the most egregious injustice in the world that makes Job's and yours and mine look fairly minuscule, not meaningless because it hurts. But we can choose to tell our story in a way that is about His plans and His redemption and worship Him. So friends, is your default response to life's difficulties <laughs> to take others down with me and to be the rod of justice that we can't be or to praise Him for salvation? Those are the options available to us. May we be men and women who continue to with maturity Praise God for what He's given us. Let's pray together, friends.